0: Welcome to the Sanctified Mind podcast. You didn't clap. I don't need to clap because there's no there's no video with this one. Doesn't matter. We <laughs> still clap it up. That's <laughs> right. how we start this. Thank there you. There we go. We no don't one, have
1: intro music, so we have clapping.
0: No one who's listening knows what we're talking about, but that's fine. Welcome to the Sanctified Mind podcast. Uh, I'm Daniel. I'm here with Bo and Ryan, of course, and then again another joined...
1: Baptist.
0: That's right. Amen. Wes is, is here he? with us. Wes is here with us again. We had to bring in another Baptist. You know, we gotta give Bo some reinforcements from time to time, even though we're talking about a subject that we would all agree on. That's Amen. right. I think it's we should point out that you know us uh, Reformed and the Reformed Baptist we agree on 99 <laughs> percent of things. <laughs> okay. Right, The Reformed and the Reformed Baptists were very close, right? Would you agree, Mo, with my statement there? Yes, yes. yes and how I phrased Reformed.
1: it? Yes. Those that are effectively following Simper Reformanda are very close with you Reformed Presbyterians. Absolutely.
0: Well, there we go. So we are talking about, we, we've reviewed Woke Christianity, or Woke Church by Eric Mason, and then we reviewed Real Christianity by Wilberforce. And so now we're going to kind of talk about those topics, and we're going to talk about race We're going to talk about racism, the church, you know, what's the church's role Has the church failed? What does justice have to do with these ideas of social justice? And is woke something legitimate that we should be trying to pursue? Should we try to to be woke as, as the church? Even if this is not a topic that interests you, I mean, this is a topic that is here, whether we want it or not it's in a lot of churches if you're in a bigger church you probably have you're probably going to talk to people who believe this way and you you might even hear it from your leadership about social justice and woke and things like this because it is extremely extremely popular in the church especially the broad evangelical church this is here this topic is here so well here
2: here's the problem and this is where I would want to start what is wokeness because i think when people start to hear this they're going to first go to What does it mean to be woke? I think the implications that you can draw from it are one thing, but when you hear what somebody like Mason will say wokeness is, he says, being woke is to be aware. Being woke is to acknowledge the truth. Being woke is to be accountable. Being woke is to be active. This is the call of God on the church and on every believer. What's wrong with being any of those things, guys?
3: Well, I think that, that the question of being woke is being true. That all depends on what you actually believe the truth to be, because it feels like in the woke church and in terms of intersectionality, being woke or being true in that sense is something that they believe people in the woke church believe to be true. Now that's not necessarily meaning what we actually believe to be true based on Data based on statistics, whatever. But at the same time, if we don't believe that their truth is true, then one, we are not woke. Two, we are not see. I love understanding. That. Three, we don't get it. Four, we don't. We we will never understand. The I truth. love I
2: love that right there where you said their truth. This is something where I hear a lot in today's culture. I'm speaking my truth. I'm speaking oh, <laughs> yeah. my truth here, Yeah. you know, or their that's what it, truth, or the twi- you know, and this is why what, I this said is that. Yeah, yeah, this is what this is what they will say because it's supposed to derive sympathy right, and because, empathy
0: because experience truth comes out of experience a lot of times, and if you haven't experienced what I've experienced, how can you tell me that what I've experienced is not true? And again, so that that gets into well, what is truth, right, and stuff. But as far as like specifically talking about the word woke. You know, he says we're gonna borrow it from Col- Eric Mason specifically. Like he defines it like you define it, and what's wrong with that, right? Defining it like that. Well, we might say, okay, nothing's wrong with that. That's a good definition. But he says we're borrowing this term from culture, and then we're gonna redeem it. But but can you do that? Can you take something from culture that's used a certain way and means a certain thing in culture, and just say, well, I'm gonna take that word, and now it means something different, and we've redeemed this word, so now it's a good now it's a good term. But do people really? believe what you are saying it means when, when they hear it? Is that, I would say no, right? You can't, I'm I'm going to affirm
2: black lives matter without ever saying anything about whether I believe in the, the ultimate origin of that movement, right? Right. Black lives matter. Therefore, right. I uh, subscribe to basically everything that they say, unless I qualify it, which Eric Mason didn't do a great job of here. If he was trying to do that.
0: Right. But, So, so I think it's ignorant to say that we can just take something that means a certain thing in culture and christianize, uh, and
1: christianize it and
0: christianize it and say okay we're going to make this mean something correct like no no one disagrees that black lives matter but the the statement black lives matter means much more than than the image bears of god who have black skin color their lives matter like it means much more than that and i think it's it's a uh, naive to think that you can just take a statement like that and just say, well, oh, well, that's just what I mean. I just mean what I say, but it's like, but no one else thinks you mean that when you say that, because there's all these other cultural connotations attached to this word. So we don't need to be, I mean, I think it's almost to the point where it's intentionally, you're being intentionally dishonest. If you're trying to say like, I'm just using this word, but I don't mean what everyone thinks it means. I mean, this other thing that it means like, that's not helpful to anyone. Right. So Even if the statement, you know, we can define woke in a good way, doesn't mean that that's what it means in popular culture. That's how it's used, and that's how it's played out when we actually examine the worldview that, you know, goes around with it. So I think trying to use the term is a mistake in and of itself. Um, You know, call it something different. Make your own term, you know, then define it biblically. Don't try to take what the world has, and don't let the world drive your worldview. Dictate the terms. Yeah, dictate the terms of the conversation, because then the battle's already lost, right?
1: So he says here uh, on page 27, he says, being truly woke is rooted in Christ consciousness. So that takes both sides of that coin where he's trying to take this term woke and he's trying to apply it within the Christian worldview. The problem with that is the moment he uses the word Christ and consciousness, he is basically denoting the idea that this term has to be defined in terms of how Christ would see it. Now, how do we know how Christ would see it? We have to define it, in ter- if we even should define it, if we even need a term like that, because the Bible certainly doesn't speak in those terms. It speaks in terms of regenerate and unregenerate. But let's say, for assume for the sake of argument, we need this term woke, we have to define it within the idea of Christ consciousness. So we have to define it within the idea of a biblical perspective. We cannot approach this term as autonomous human beings. We've said before on this podcast, and I think we can all agree, there is no neutrality when it comes to your thinking. You are either with Christ or you are not. So you are defining this term based off of what the Bible says about it. What does the Bible say About the idea of being conscious with Christ. It's that your identity is in Christ. When you take on Christ, you stop thinking in terms of, I am a black man, a white man, an Asian man, or anything in those terms because your identity is in Christ. That doesn't mean that your ethnicity disappears, but it means that that is not the basis for your identity. The basis for your identity is in Christ. So any notion of justice that you have, any aspect of your worldview has to be informed by what the Bible says it ought to be. And I think that's where Mason absolutely misses the mark, because he is not starting from that, that perspective. He's not starting from the idea that the Bible ought to inform his views of justice, of grace, of ethics, and all these things. He's starting from the autonomous view that man is neutral and could define these things based on cultural terms Well, he has to,
2: he has to, you know, it's not that he, he can or that he would want to, but he has to, again, to go back to what we mentioned in our review of the book itself. He says that doing theology will include processing it through one's cultural grid. He said, all theology is done that way. It's not that theology is the grid through which we process culture. He's saying that it's culture. That's the grid through which we process theology. And again, that's completely reversed. So, while he might say he's trying to redeem terms, it seems as if he really is just accepting lump sum. What the culture has already dictated are the terms, right? And, and then writing a book about it, right? Basically, yeah. No, I agree with you. Yeah, one of the questions I had, uh, and while we're defining terms, is I had a question about what you guys would define racism to be, because this is, um, you know, an important issue. What uh, do you think a racist is?
0: That that's a good question because one of the worst things about Eric Mason's book, Woke Church, is that it places a terrible burden on the people of God. And I think that this is what critical race theory does. This is what intersectionality does. Is this places this burden upon people that you are a racist? You know, <laughs> e- even if like people are like, "Well, I'm not a racist. Like, I don't." In, in what I would understand to mean racism, like think my race is superior and other races are inferior to mine. And I live my life that way. And I, I don't do these things, but this whole idea is that, yeah, you are a racist and you're contributing to it because you don't do this or you do do this. Right. I heard someone say there, there are real sins out there, right. That the church and the people need to deal with. There's real sins, right. There is uh you know, pornography is overrunning the church, right. Worldliness, secularness is overrunning the church. There's all these real sins that we can deal with. We don't need to make up sins and tell people like, "Well, you're a racist because you know you might not do anything overly racist, right? But because you are a part of the system or because right. you're a part you're of silent. this you're silent. Yep. You're silent or because of you're a, you're a part of this church that did this, you know, you're you're by proxy implicated in this." I think it's just a A huge disservice to the people of God, you know, people that are really struggling with real, real sins, right? Individual sins, specific sins. Say, like, you have this nebulous sin of racism. But then it's not even like there's this, like, here's a clear path to not being a racist, right? It's just like, you're a
3: racist, so do better, you know? I mean, like, I don't, I think it's it's very hard in this culture today to actually define racist because they call everything racist. Exactly. To be implicit on something in culture is to be a racist. Or to be silent in something, or to be silent and not speaking out against something is is racist. And that's not necessarily true. So I think it's hard as a culture to define racist. So I, I'm actually curious to see what you guys actually define
1: racist. So I think, I think that uh, the Bible has to as best it can. And I I don't mean to imply that the Bible is a handbook for all modern day living. Um, You know, I I don't, I don't think that's the case, but I think there are certain applications that we can draw on. I I think that um, the story about the good Samaritan is a perfect example of uh, racism. You could even say that um, Jonah is a good example of racism. It is the idea of allowing your prejudices to color the way that you view people um, in a certain light of being an injustice to them. Um, But that's a legitimate sin. Um, It's a tangible sin. You can see it in people's lives. It's not a thought crime. It's not based on all these microaggressions. It's not based on this crazy theory that uh, is cultural Marxism at its core that decides or or is designed to divide people into classes of oppressor and oppressed. It's real sin that individuals commit against other individuals. It's not group against group. You know, you can see that, sure, there are probably groups of people that have grouped together, and they've acted as racist towards other groups of people, and that's wrong, and that's sin, but that doesn't mean that you imply that to everybody in that group across time, especially when they're so far removed from it that they had no actual dealings in it whatsoever. That's insanity.
0: And there can be unjust laws, right? Laws that are unjust that we should change and make just, Um, but not everyone who is residing under those laws is guilty because of those laws, right? Right. Um, I actually think, uh, Eric Mason is a racist. So
2: before you get to that, because I, I am, I'm leading us there. Oh, I, am, I am really leading us there. Um, I am, I'm getting to some of this, but <laughs> before we get there, I do want to, because I brought this up, I do want to try to redeem the term racism. Okay. That would be I would great. say Thank that right. racism is thinking or acting as if another person is not fully an image of God. Due to the color of their skin or their ethnicity, so we see an example of this in Galatians. I think
3: that's a solid, like, biblical definition of right. racist because there's. I think there's a secular. There's definitely a secular definition of racist because just because you don't like somebody of a different color, different ethnicity, different race, whatever, then automatically you're you're a racist in in a worldly viewpoint
2: and the sad thing is Eric Mason is so close to this, like in so much of what he's saying about the image of God is foundational to this sort of conversation that he's trying to drive. If he had just started by saying something like this, racism is thinking or acting as if another person is not fully an image of God due to the color of their skin or ethnicity. And then drew an example, like when Paul confronted uh, Peter about not eating with Gentiles because He withdrew because of the circumcision party. This is Galatians 2, right? Mm -hmm. This is an individual acting wrongly. He called him out, and repentance was called for, and and it was given. So this is not something that's foreign to the church. At the same time, because we are all equal in Christ as images of God, and especially now that we've been reconciled to God through Christ— how much more should we then be reconciled to each other? And I think, Daniel, this is where you were leading to um, with your question about Eric Mason and racism. There are some very questionable statements in the book about segregation. And I don't know if that's where you're going or not, but that's where I was going to ultimately lead this to if I could.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I would, I agree with your definition of racism, but I would make it even simpler as, you know, uh, thinking one race, your race is superior intrinsically because of the race because of your ethnicity to other races right that's what i would say is racism and so i don't even think most of the people like eric mason would not charge individual christian again this is the whole problem with critical race theory is they're not charging individual people and saying like you think your race is superior to others they wouldn't say that i don't believe he would think most people think that there are people that think that obviously that's not your normal person in america thinks like oh i'm white so i'm superior right or they would say, like, implicitly because of the systems we live in. and the Again, it, it, it goes back to groups. So they're, they're, they're not taking it individually, but I don't think you can define racism without it being, like Bo said, an individual sin. It's an sure. individual sin that you yourself would do. So when I say I think – and I'm not trying to be pejorative to Eric Mason when I say he's a racist. I don't think he's like a KKK flaming racist who hates white people type thing. I think he's someone who is has has struggles with racism because of his family's past his his father's past you know he has a story about his you know his uh you know ancestors being being mistreated extremely mistreated by white people and so I think even though he has not been mistreated himself to that kind of extent I think he has baggage that makes him a racist where he he looks down upon white people and I think it comes through in his writing when he talks about things like He's very focused on, like, the contributions to theological, you know, our theological, you know, breadth of knowledge that we have. He talks about, like, oh, all these guys are—a lot of these guys are from Africa, like, from northern Africa, like Augustine and, you know, all these—a lot of these early church fathers and stuff. And he's like, well, these guys are from Africa, but, you know, it's not ever said that they're black, you know. And I actually (laughs) went through and looked up a bunch of pictures of these guys. They all look white. They're all white. I mean, they all look white, you know. So, again—
2: Augustine,
3: I Augustine doesn't look white
2: when I've seen his pictures. Granted,
3: Augustine looked probably – he he was he was from the Latin culture. He was a Roman. He looked citizen, like a tan so. white
0: person. I mean, they would define white now as white non-Latinos. So, I mean, like, you know, there's a very fine line. Again, there's not some kind of hard divide where it's like this person was African because he was from Africa. Like all African people look exactly the same or something like that. It's kind of my point. Um, but then he talks about like, you can't talk about the gospel without talking about the black church in America. And it's like, wh- what are you talking about? Like, why did, wh- like, I would never even think to think in those terms. Like, I don't read theologians and think, well, this is a white theologian. You like, can't... I never picture the color of a theologian when I read them, unless I've seen their picture like John Calvin
3: or something who's white. I would never
0: even think to care, like origin, like, a lot of these North yeah, African I guys, don't, you know, I don't
3: care. Right what skin color they have or the amount of melanin they have in their skin. Right. But if I read what they write and think, wow, this guy knows God. He loves God, he loves the gospel, he loves other people, then I'm going to listen to this man. I don't care what skin color he is. Right. So And so th- that's kind of what I mean by
0: by when I say he str- I think he struggles with racism. Um and again, not not to be pejorative to him, but I really do reading the book because he makes it, he has such a hyper focus on race. We have to have black voices talking about being preeminent in theology. Why? I mean, like, why does it matter what their skin color is? Like, why is that? Like, why does, why do we have to elevate the black race and say like, Oh, we have to have black. Like, yeah, we would hope that we would have voices for Christ in every, you know, nation and every, you know, culture and every people, um, and I think we do, you know. I mean, yeah. there's. I mean, I can think some of my favorite theologians are black. You know, Bakum comes to mind, you know, immediately. Uh, a couple of other pastors from Africa that I've listened to. My you own, know. my he own. He doesn't. Pastor. He doesn't
3: agree with him. so he's not necessarily. He's not black, the, right? Yeah, yeah. he's not black. I would
2: say yeah. my own pastor is black. He's from Ethiopia. He's been uh, put in prison. I mean, this and he's is, a great preacher. He's so. a great preacher, exactly. So it's not about. It shouldn't be about race, but I do agree with what you're saying about the baggage that he's brought with him and i think that there is a lot of fear and he says this he admitted himself i don't know that he anticipated you know this being a topic of real concern but when he says something like i fear that if we partner with whites that they will find a way to subjugate blacks and make us dependent on them in a way that kills our freedom of a truly black led institution right who's
0: thinking like that That's totally something you've made up in your mind. It's like, where are the whites conspiring to subjugate the blacks in the OPC? This is the
2: problem. He's talking about people in the church. He's talking about Christians who should have their thinking redeemed about this already. When When he says, surely, reconciliation is a higher calling than separation. Yes, of course it is. But then when you follow that up with... Uh, can black people trust the new form of reconciliation to address their needs and give room for black leadership? Past experiences, answers are resounding no. That should not be in the topic in the first place. It should be about who leads us to Christ. How are we serving him? It's not about who's the black leader or the white leader or who is the president or whatever. You know, This is not what reconciliation means.
3: Then he follows up with like suggesting that maybe the black and the white church should separate for a time to realize how much they need each other in in the church. And I think that's just ridiculous because you see, you just see that as that segregation. Like that's, that's, that's a, what they they claim to have fought. Yeah, it's, that that's what they claim to have fought in the 1960s. And it's that's respecting. That's respecting what persons, right? I that's mean, what he's calling you know, for in yeah. the church today to see how much we miss each other, and that's just ridiculous.
2: Yeah, I, towards the end of the book, he talks about the value of multi-ethnic groups that are that are worshiping together because that's what we see in Revelation. Right? We are. You know, every kindred and tribe and nation and people are all together worshiping Christ. And that's the ideal. That's what we want. We've all been reconciled in Christ. But then you're lamenting that there's no black church, that why would we want to join with whites if they're just going to subjugate us or, you know, we can't trust them. It's mixed messages. And I do think it stems from fear. And that's a very sad thing. It's, it's somewhat similar to how there's people fearful of coronavirus today. I mean, he mentions that God's sovereignty led us to a place where um, the division happened. But at the same time, we should always be seeking reconciliation. It's disappointing to see that there might be that hint of doubt that he doesn't trust that Jesus's prayer in John 17 can be fulfilled by the Father. Where, you know, he prays for unity amongst Christ's uh, church, right? Us believers. If Christ prayed for it, it's going to happen. Right, Just like Christ prayed for the Father to give him all that would be given to him, his elect, and that they would be drawn to him, and they would come. I mean, Christ never has a prayer that goes to the Father that's just ignored. Okay, So if he's praying for unity within the church, then it's going to happen. But that requires us to accept each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, not because we're black or white.
0: So... I think just continuing on this conversation here, I do think, and he mentions in the book that history we have in America of slavery and then and then segregation and oppression affects people today. And I think that um, in the past I thought that you know, like this like you were not you are not a product of segregation. like you you were never a part of segregation. like you live past that, that's gone, that's done away with you you're not a slave you know so how does that affect you but i do think that that affects people because i think that stuff is passed on generationally right i think that um, what our grandparents went through and our parents you know that that stuff passes down through through the lineage so how do we deal with this in a biblical way and how do we have sympathy but also how do we how do we have sympathy while maintaining the truth and not compromising the gospel and the, and the truth of the bible how do we deal with it without going the critical race theory route, right? And 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 saying this is the solution.
1: So I think that one of the key points is that you are seeking justice in that sense. You you do I, I in, in a in a sense to be as charitable as I can be to this. There is the idea that as image bearers, uh, we represent the God who created us, and the God who created us is a just God. So we have a, a right and an obligation as Christians um, to seek out justice and to try to right wrongs where we see them. Um, the The Bible talks about that. You know, we ha- that's why we have governments. Uh, we have governments to meet out laws. But the thing is that those laws have to be defined biblically. So can, I, I, go ahead.
0: Can I define justice real quick before sure. we go forward talking about justice? Because I think this is a big part of the discussion. So. I would define justice if y'all will agree with this as giving to each person his due. I giving think, to each person what they are due or what they reap, owe.
1: You reap what you sow. Well, yeah. Not even
0: what they sow, but what they are due, what they deserve. Yeah. The Obviously replete. that would need to be based biblically, but what they are due,
3: what they are owed. I think I think there's more to it than that. Well, um, a, I mean broadly is that a good definition? Yeah, broadly, yeah, it's I mean, we, true. We can I think it, I think we can define and I'm not I'm not I'm saying this as somebody that has researched this and Coming to the conclusion that justice is it's proportional, it's truthful, impartial, and direct. So proportional means that the, the punishment fits the crime. Right. It's you know it's truthful in that it's concerned only with the facts at hand, in that it is provable, and um, it's proved by the motives behind. Impartial means that it shows no pref- preferential treatment to either the accused or the accuser and direct in that it executes punishment on the party proven guilty, not that, not their family, not their friends, not their groups, uh, they belong to, uh, or the city that they live in. That's so, really good.
0: So um, I, I think you're just, def- you're defi- you're further defining what each person is
3: given what they're due. So, you know, yeah, I mean, based I'm, I'm just on expounding on yeah, what, yeah. what we, what you meant is that they're given what they're due, right? Because it, it goes beyond just given what they're due. It, it's, it's it's more nuanced based, than that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's definitely more nuanced. Under that. that would
0: fall that, you know, it needs to be you know, like, you know, what they're due is proportional to what they've done. Right. Yeah. And all these things. I, I definitely agree with you. But so so continue with what you were saying, giving that definition, you know, broadly. So we're all, all operating under the same general idea of justice. Right. That it's what you're due. You know, proportional to what you've done, and what the Bible would say is the correct response. You know, to what you've done and what you're owed because of that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, and I, I would say that the the basis of this book is there is a hole, um, and you know, we we didn't spend a lot of time in the past talking about theonomy, but there is this hole of how should the culture and society interact with the notion of God's justice. And I think that uh, that whole – that gives you the idea that no matter how you slice it, that hole is going to be filled with something. So in this sense, we see it filled with critical race theory. We see it filled with cultural Marxism. Uh, We see that there are societal issues, things that need to be reformed in our system of government, in our system of law, our system of justice, sure – you know, I, I can say that as as an, as an ardent conservative. That there there's things that need to be fixed, and we should fix them. But we we ought to fix them with the view of what is justice and what does that look like. And it has to be informed through the Bible. So, in the idea of you know, we should make sure that due process is impartial. You know, where it's not, we ought to fix that. That doesn't mean that it's always not impartial. And that certainly doesn't mean that you have to, you know. Um, kowtow to one group over the other just in the sense of trying to balance the scales but we should seek impartiality in the justice system you know we we should be seeking to reform things where we see that there's reform but we have to see that reform through a biblical lens we can't see it through a lens of cultural marxism if that makes any sense
3: i think you're gonna have to
1: define what cultural marxism is and critical race theory is for people to understand i think that's a great idea so the cultural Marxism comes from the uh, it's it's an offshoot of Marxism. Marxism is an economic philosophy um, that basically has the idea of uh, you know the uh, controlling the means of production. But Karl Marx was talking thinking about that in an economic system. However, we know that nobody's neutral, and neither was Karl Marx. So while he may have been thinking about it through an economic system, he was essentially espousing an anti anti biblical worldview. Um, cultural Marxism comes from uh, people like Antonio Gramsci and the Frankfurt School, where the idea is that rather than uh, getting to the the ends of Marxism through the economy, you do it through a cultural revolution. Um, the Frankfurt School's specialty was the idea of controlling the way that people saw and interpreted media and information. And one of the biggest things that the Frankfurt School did was they pointed to the idea that you need to control the, uh, the robes of society. That is the judges, um, the government institution, the politicians, the, uh, the academic universities and the churches. So it's this idea of transforming culture by controlling these choke points basically, um, to completely change people's minds. When we talk and we hear terms like political correctness, multiculturalism intersectionality critical race theory we are speaking in cultural marxist gramsci frankfurt school terms Um, this is not a new thing it's an old thing uh, it's 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 based off of Marxism and it's completely anti-biblical and that that should serve for the basis. If you want to know more about it, uh, look up uh, Vodi Bacham. He has uh, talked extensively about these things, and there's a whole bunch of other people that have uh, written and spoken about them as well, so you can learn more about them. But it's a very real philosophy that has permeated our culture, our media, our academic institutions, and our churches, unfortunately. And every Christian ought to know about it so that he can see it for what it is. Um, and oppose it on biblical grounds.
3: I think it actually goes far beyond a philosophy. I think it is a worldview that is dangerous to society as a whole um, because the idea of that these hegemonic power structures, it's the world view that the view of the world through hegemonic power structures, meaning the, the oppressed versus the oppressor. Um, and, w- and we've talked about that before on this episode and in previous ones too, but... it's a worldview that goes beyond just a philosophy because people are actually believing this to be actual truth. And uh, I I just don't think there's, there's data to back that up. And, And it's deadly. It's deadly
0: because the Bible tells you you're a sinner before God individually. And you have individual sins that you need to repent of and believe in Christ for him to cover those sins. And so, when we tell people everything is a group dynamic that, you know, like it doesn't matter that you were a, a poor white person from the hills of the Appalachian, you know, the Appalachian mountains, right. That you, you are privileged because you're, you know, part of this privileged class and that just because you're a black person, it doesn't matter what, what your station in life is or the, you know, outward circumstances that you're oppressed and you deserve some, you have some kind of like a, uh, you know, thing that you know, you need reparations or you need some kind of uh, special um, treatment or something. It just really muddies the water when the church talks about this in group dynamics rather than individual. The Bible always talks about our sins as individual, and you know, needing to um, you know look at these in terms of the individual. So, I think that is damaging to people when we when we do it like that and when we don't look at you know, when we point people away or we give people an excuse out of their individual sins. Right. And and I, I see that in the book here too, where he talks about, um, you know, a a rapper who got a harsh sentence for popping a wheelie on his bicycle. He doesn't, he doesn't explain like what are the pre, you know, what other things did he have on his record, you know, was this like a multiple strikes type of thing, but he's talking about, this is not a just judgment because he got more than he deserved. And, Again, he it it doesn't talk about well. Was he really wrong? Like, what does the law say? How does this match up against the law? Like, was he really given an unfair sentence, or or was this is what the law says should happen or,
3: to this person? Okay, yeah, he may have broken the law, but that bro- that law was made because of some reason. Like, right. That reason is because if he's if he is popping a wheelie in traffic, then that's dangerous to not only him but it's dangerous to other people. Right. So that's the reason it was a law and that's what they don't explain when those when he broke the law right and, and it's a lot of stuff like that to
0: especially like when they try people try to say like there's systemic injustice right and they say like oh look like a disproportionate amount of black people go to jail for this certain thing or, or stopped for this certain thing and what they're they're really doing a disservice to people because then it never goes back to and he talks about the same thing when he talks about education right that there needs to be education reform and we need more black teachers and stuff but he never mentions the family it's like you need to take it back to the things that really matter like there's personal responsibility here you can dump all the money in the world into the school system and teachers and things but if the family doesn't care about the school if it's, if the child's parents don't care then it doesn't matter how much money you dump into the system like there's never going to be a positive outcome there right um, because again parents matter like the, the biblical model for life and family matters and so the same thing for like personal responsibility it doesn't matter if you you know when you look at these things oh there's systemic injustice here it's like well maybe there's like cultural problems that need to be addressed here like maybe there's cultural sins here that you know we're just glossing over and giving people an out when you say oh it, it doesn't matter like there's just injustice here so your individual sins don't matter anymore you know i think that's really doing a disservice to the black community or any community where they do that and say you know you're just being treated in unjustly like you don't need to worry about your own personal sins and your own personal stance before god it doesn't matter how society treats your sin like you're responsible to god that's that's what the church's cry should be right that we answer to god for these things and yes we should strive for justice in society again giving people what they are due based on what the bible says right so you can you can go too much the opposite way where I think I see this in American conservatism, you know, evangelical conservatism where, you know, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, the porch should just work, go go get a job type of thing. But again, you can go too far the opposite direction where you tell people like you have no personal responsibility because this system is against you and you're part of the oppressed group. And that's not going to fly on Judgment Day. I mean, you're going to stand before God and give account for your actions, right? And it's not going to matter if you were oppressed or if your parents were bad, if they were good, if you were people are racist against you, like you're going to stand before God and give an account for your actions. And
3: so when the church doesn't tell people that, that's it's definitely that's not going to matter what, yeah. what oppressed group you're a part of. And that's, that's a problem with the critical race theory is that it, it is a group think. It's not just um, an individual um, viewpoint. It, it's a group think that this group is oppressed and this group is oppressing this other group. So, therefore i as a member of this group have an idea of what the oppressing group is doing to to this group and if you're part of the oppressing group you can't understand what the oppressed group is is experiencing and yeah, that's why and the- like you said it it eventually when you go before the lord you're going to go before the Lord as an individual. You're not going to go before the Lord as a group because you are oppressed as a group, not just as an individual. And, yeah, I'm sorry. Nothing else on that.
0: My pastor talks about that as far as, like, parents. He, like, directly addresses that. He's like, it doesn't matter if your parents were bad parents. Like, your parents didn't do what they were supposed to do when they raised you. That's not an excuse for your rebellion against God. What happens in your life, your circumstances, how other people wrong you, You know, whether it's individuals or groups or systems like that doesn't matter before God, like you are responsible for your own rebellion against God. And so when the church doesn't proclaim that to people, I think it does a huge disservice. Again, the church is to proclaim the gospel. And he even says this. He says, the woke church must be in the business of doing something to stem the tide of injustice in our nation. And I totally agree with that. And what should the church be doing? The woke church or the biblical church should be proclaiming the gospel. Because if we go back and look at real Christianity at Wilberforce's book, what does he do? He's proclaiming the gospel and saying, here's the gospel. Here's how Christians are to live. And that, you know, by doing that, what, what happened? Slavery in Britain yeah, stopped, right? That's, because because that's people lived s- as Christians, right? That's going
3: to slow the curve of injustice. That we see today. Right. People need to... Spreading the gospel as an individual.
0: Right, exactly. And And, as a church. And teaching people not just to be Christian, not just to accept the gospel, but what does the Bible say? Teach men to be disciples. You teach men to be disciples of Christ, and that's going to stop injustice in society.
2: So I've just been listening to the conversation for a while to think on my own about this. Um, So one of the questions that originally spawned this was Daniel's thought about where black culture is. Where did it come from? Um, we've talked about what justice is. Causes you to think about why did Wil- Wilberforce's message have such, you know, influence? Um, and that's because I think we're all sinners, and we know what our just due is. We know what our deserts are for our sin. It's eternal condemnation, and but for Christ, that would be our fate. And because it's not, because we are saved through Christ, how much more then should we um, pass on the grace that we've received? But the type of message that's not going to reach people is uh, a message that involves people raising their quote-unquote racial IQ, which is something (laughs) that Mason has spoken about. No, (laughs) raise your spiritual IQ, okay? Mm. Understand who you are as a sinner. You're a creature of God who has rebelled against him, and because you've done that, you deserve something that you have not been given if you believe in Christ. And because you have believed in Christ, how much more than should you be reconciled, not just to God, but to other men and love them? Right. That's the message that we need to be perpetuating to others and not feel guilty about what our ancestors have done. I, I know that at some point in the book, Mason talked about generational dignity. I don't know how you parse that with somebody who had an adulterous affair that produced your union, or you know, am I supposed to um, look at Judah and say, you know, if I'm Judah's son, you know, he had an adult uh, adulterous affair with Tamar? Well, that's my father right there, and I'm proud of it. I have dignity because now I, I don't think that's what you should be really looking to, and you should also not feel like that's your fault. You know, yes, you were the product I mean, I wonder how many people who have been the product of adultery feel guilty but is that your fault right no that's not, that's not something that you did are you
0: proud of your lineage there right like yeah
2: that's not something that you did that's something that your ancestor did and you're accountable for your own actions and you're a sinner too but at the same time you should not have to feel like you owe reparations to some you, you know your not mother who should have been your mother or whatnot like and i know that from looking at videos that Eric Mason's been putting out recently, he's been talking about reparations and this is where the woke church is leading. This is not where he was sure. in 2012 when you had uh, Wes, your, your conference that you went to. This is not where he was in 2018 when he wrote this book, but it is where he's at now. He's talking about reparations to the, uh, to his people. Again, he's talking about black people. He's not talking about the church. Right. In fact, if you look at the video that he's talking about there, he's talking about the church oppressing Black people, as in they were the slave masters, and therefore the church is the one who owes reparations. This is just completely cycled to where um, because you've put culture first, now you're attacking the church implicitly without right. realizing it.
0: And it doesn't mean we're colorblind, right? When we say, like, our identity is in Christ and is a Christian, doesn't mean we're saying oh, I'm colorblind. Like, that's a character. I think. Like, right. who says that? Like, I don't see color. Like, no one really. Pe- <laughs> the only people saying, I don't see color, are the people scared of being labeled a racist. And so they're like, oh, I don't see color. You know, like. It's true. No, everyone sees color. We're all
3: one race, the human race. Yeah, Damn. but
0: what is our main identity, right? That's what yeah. That's what the question is. And our, our main identity is in Christ. You know, the only reparations that we should be thinking about is that we owe God, right? Yes. <laughs> that we Amen. owe God and our... Debt has been forgiven in Christ by grace, right? And so preaching the gospel and, and telling men about the gospel, the true gospel. And so, again, I think this is a, a problem in the church. You know, if we want to talk about the real problem, is that if we have a gospel that gives men some type of part in it, if if, if your salvation is because you chose, right, or you, you know, mustered up something, then that leaves room for racial superiority. Like, why did you choose? Why why is... Uh, Why is white culture, right, advanced more than, like, why is, you know, in, in, like, Africa? Why did America and Europe advance more than Africa? If, if salvation has something to do with the man's choosing, then we have room there for racial superiority, Mm -hmm. right? But if we have a true, if we have a correct view of, of God and the Bible and, and the gospel, that God chose you not for anything in you, but totally of his free grace and his purposes, then that doesn't leave any room for racial boasting, right? It's like... You know, we deserved hell and punishment, and God gave us grace. And so if if a Christian, if, if the people of God are told that, the, the truth of the gospel and that, yeah, it's nothing to do with you. Like, you deserve hell. You, you know, you deserve to pay God eternity for your sins. But you've been given grace, and it's not anything because of your color. I mean, like, you know, there's nothing in you, so it can't be anything to do with your color. It's all of God. So leaves no room.
2: But that does cause me to think about a conversation that we had years ago. Um, Daniel, and that's when we were talking about why are certain cultures more advanced than others. And the tendency has been it's because those cultures have been exposed to the gospel.
0: Right. So all, all cultures are not created equal. There's nothing racist about saying that. Um, no, you see col- that
3: you see that in Genesis eleven when when God separated people out of the Tower of Babel. Right. Um and the idea that these people went out from the Tower of Babel and and were different. They spoke different languages. They did different things. Um, That doesn't mean that God isn't going to redeem them. It just means that men thought more than what they actually were, that they thought they knew better than God and that they could reach God and they could be God. And God said, no, you cannot. You're – and – For me to show you that, I'm going to separate you into different ethnicities, and that's the idea. um, The idea of race, and I I don't know how true this is. I just looked this up, Um, and that race was wasn't actually a thing talked about until the early, or I'm sorry, the late 19th century. In that people were separated by race. Race wasn't a thing before then. And if y'all know anything different, y'all please speak up because I'm not I'm not quite sure. I think race is a sociological term that people started using in the late 19th century.
2: I won't stop you. I'm just one of the things I'll point out is that uh, Mason's book is largely targeted towards Western Americans. <laughs> like he yeah. doesn't even he doesn't even pause <laughs> to stop to think about what's happening everywhere else in the world. So yeah. this is just a very targeted book that doesn't seem to acknowledge any sorts of anything anywhere else like oh we're all right ra- the, the church is racist okay the church is just more than america okay so yeah, yeah. first of all that's what you need to start with that's
3: but, a that's yeah, a ahead. huge no that's a huge thing to, to to say because he does not mention anything throughout the world he only mix, mentions the american church and but the idea that god separated these people at the tower of babel into ethnicities. They didn't separate them into quote unquote race because we didn't know what quote unquote race was until the, the, late 19th century is that these people were separate, but all had the same dignity under like in God. They had the same dignity by God, not in God, by God. Right. Um, they, they are still people. They're still made in the image of God. Therefore they have, the ability to be right before God doesn't matter what language they spoke or ethnicity that they were. I
2: don't know. I I, I think that some humans have been looked at as subhuman as slaves for a long time. <laughs> Second book of the Bible, Exodus, the Jews are slaves. Mm-hmm. You think that God would have put in any measures for quote unquote reparations that should have been due to the Jews if there had been anything due to the Jews from people who were not even involved in the crimes committed against them, right? Like, oh, the Egyptian culture now now owes the Jews X amount of dollars or reparations or whatever you want to describe it as. No, because those aren't the people who oppressed them,
3: and God didn't see fit to bring those up in the time of the Exodus. You know, I never, so, I never actually have seen any of those talks that Eric Mason has done recently about reparations, but I know the argument for reparations right now is the book of Esther and that the, the people of Israel were given a specific amount of money after the, the Babylonian exile. And I, I think it's a stretch at most, um,
2: well, I know who was hanged as the basis of that, and that was one person who plotted against the Jews. So <laughs> exactly. That's all, that's, as much yeah, that's, as I can say about that right now. That's
3: what, that's what I'm saying.
2: It's a stretch for sure. Well, it, it wasn't generations down the line where we're <laughs> yeah. talking
0: about that. So how different is it, uh, the current conversation from men like Booker T. Washington, right? You know what he said? He said it was a blessing from God that Africans were brought to America in slavery because they were exposed to the gospel. No, that, that was his view Th- this is the sovereignty of God that brought black men here from Africa, black men and women um, even though you know it was bad like like the Jews God had a purpose with their enslavement right for their good like he says for all of his people and they were exposed to the gospel and and you know they which they wouldn't have been if they had been left in Africa. So in his mind it was better for them to have been brought to America even as slaves, because they were exposed to the gospel, it was a net positive. Now, obviously, it's not the way we would have chosen that, and it was a sinful way, right, to steal men and bring them to America. Um, But God was working his purposes there. And so I think if you have a robust, and again, this is why theology is so important, and he he talks about in the book too, like, oh, the black church has been discounted and say it's just social gospel. But, you know, there's a lot of truth to that, that the black church is, is caught up in this, the social gospel and is theologically weak. I mean, you know, governor Kemp in Georgia had a day of prayer last year where he had a bunch of pastors come and pray at the, at the Capitol. Right. And I watched it. Um, by and large, the, there was a distinct divide between the black and white pastors and the white pastors praying for God to open the eyes of the blind to send forth his spirit, to save men, to change our nation, you know, to to convert men. And the black pastors, I mean, almost all of them, praying for social justice things. Not the gospel, but for justice, societal justice to be done. Not for the gospel to spread, not for God to change men's hearts, and to, you know, bring them from death to life. So, you know, he can say that all all he wants. um, But Again, theology matters, right? Theology matters, and if we don't have correct theology about salvation, if salvation has something of men, if salvation is not all of God, you know, if God is not sovereign over history, if God is not sovereign over the lives of his people working all things for their good, then yeah, we can be very bitter about what happened in the past, and yeah, we can be very uh, upset about the about history, and we can have, find ex- tons of excuses. Again, like my pastor talks about, you can have all the excuses you want, about bad parents who didn't do what they should do, but th- that doesn't matter. Like you're to stand before God as an individual, and you know um, that's what you're responsible for. You're not responsible for what other people do. You're responsible for what you do. And so when you preach to people that you know you need reparations, you know everyone's out to get you. Everything is racist. <coughs> you're doing people such a disservice because what you should be telling people is you're responsible for your response to the place God has placed you in his sovereignty towards him. Like that's what you're responsible for, not for other people, but for yourself.
2: And that's where I would say as well, um, (laughs) biblically, theologically speaking, suffering comes before glory. The early church was persecuted. They were scattered among the whole earth. And what happened? God's greater glory because the ends of the earth are now able to hear his message. Right, Christ Christ himself was struck down as the shepherd for his sheep <coughs> so that we could be reconciled just because people suffer here and now does not mean and, and injustice doesn't go punished as it deserves to be doesn't mean that it doesn't get accounted for in eternity and that's really the hope that I hope people take away from this You know, as bad as things can get it all is looked at by God. Nothing is left out of his eye. He's not sitting back and just ignorant of what's going on. Even if suffering happens and it's unjust suffering, that is going to be taken into account by him. Not the church should be looking for the needy, right? And we should be on the front lines of trying to provide for them. And that is something that the church can always do better at. And so... In respect of that part of the message, I completely agree. But that does not yes. mean that we subvert what the order or the grid that we should look at these issues should be. We should always look at these things through a biblical lens, not the cultural lens. And that's why I want to. I hope that that um, is what I leave people with the most out of this. It's not that you know whatever comes up through the culture, it it has been put in God's you know providence in our minds, in our culture, for a reason. It's to address those issues through a biblical lens, not to go to those things and just you know, hop from one issue to another, hot-button issues to um, say, okay, well, now this is important because it's just been raised, and this is important because it's just been raised. No, these have always been important, and God's church is always supposed to be involved in the process of redeeming culture, not culture-redeeming the Bible.
0: And I think that's where first book is so valuable because you know, you can't again, we're talking about this, but you can't just say, Oh, God's sovereign and, you know, I'm just responsible for like my specific response to God. It's like, yeah, you are, and God is sovereign, but he's told you a whole bunch of stuff you should do. Like we should care for the for the widows and the child and the fatherless, right? We should care about justice in our society. And so there is this whole litany of things, like that book kind of smacks you upside the head and says, Yeah, okay, but are you living your life? with God's glory in mind and with obedience to him in mind and with fulfilling all the commandments he's given us in the Bible is that because that's a full-time job if you're doing that that's Mm -hmm. you know Christianity is not some lackadaisical thing where you're just like oh yeah this is just how how it goes in my society in my community so that's where I can agree with Eric Mason and that's where I saw the the best points about the book where he talks about like hey the church should be involved and it's the church should know the church should be asking its community hey what, what they should know what's going on in their community, right? We know that the community needs the gospel, but we should also be seeing who are the fatherless, who are the widows, you know, who are the people that are downtrodden in the community? Where is injustice happening? Where are people being, you know, given things, you know, that they're not due, right, um, and being mistreated? We should be addressing those things. But the problem is that when he points out, you know, eight, eight people being killed by cops during the year and say, Oh, look, here is the great injustice of the society that eight, eight black, eight unarmed black people were killed by cops, you know, or, or 12 unarmed black people. It's like, it's like, what are you talking about here? So, you know, we can agree with him as far as that Christians should be active. And again, that's, I think the value of the Wilberforce book is like, yeah, like we should care about people. We should care about the souls of people and how, you know, things are, are done to them on this earth. Um, but, we don't have to accept faulty premises and faulty, you know, uh, just unproven things about systemic racism. That's just kind of vague nebulous there. And, you know, because uh, there's been a couple of, you know, high profile things in the country that happened that this is some kind of like overriding issue. You know, it's like I see this kind of thing. I'm like, you know, oh, wow. wow there was 15 unarmed black people killed by cops. Well, great. There was 200,000 black people. You know, babies killed by abortion doctors this year, you know, it's like there were, you know, uh, 2000 black people killed by other black people like obviously there is sin issues here. Right. But let's not create a little kind of like a hobby horse cultural issue that's popular in the culture and say this is all we need to address. Right. No, God defines justice. And. You know, I think that's the problem with it is that it heaps sin on people that they're like, well, I don't know what sin it is. How do I atone for this? You know, how I don't even know what I'm doing wrong. You know, it's like, no, there's real sin, and there's real inactivity of Christians, and there's real things that we should be doing in our community. So that's why I've chosen a lot of the books I've chosen next year that talk about how we, how Christians should live in the community. Like, what should our goals be? What should our aims be? Um, Because I do think when Wilberforce said, like, primarily when we decide where we're going to work, where we're going to live, where we're, what we're going to do. We're doing it with like personal comfort and personal prosperity in mind, which is not what Christians should be doing. Um, so how do we, how do we approach these things? Because I do think we have a very, uh, a very disjointed community in our, in our country because of a lot of different issues. And I think that exacerbates problems in community because there is no community. There's no real community now with, um, churches where everyone commutes to a church, you know, where people don't live in subdivisions and don't really know their neighbors, you know. So there's a lot of other issues here, but I don't think race is the, is the driving issue
3: at all. I think the great thing about Wilberforce's book was that as a believer in government, he was able to, I'm sure, able to share the gospel with other people in government causing the abolition of slavery in Eng- England. But I don't think... I'd like to not think that he thought that the government's job was to do these social things. Like, it's the government's job to feed the poor. It's the government's job to um, take care of widows. I'd like to think that he believed that that, that was the church's job. It was the church's and job, yeah. It, it it definitely is the church's job, Um that that's a biblical worldview of what what right. should be happening, and I'd like to think that Wilberforce thought that too. But as a believer in government, he was able to push that on other people in government, right. so that they could become the church. Therefore, they're the ones helping the poor and the oppressed and the and the the fatherless, the the widows. Um, and I think that's that that's one of the issues today is that people have this idea that people. We should rely on the government to do those things, right? And that's that's not the government's job. Yeah. The government's job is to make sure that what we can in justice can be done on the people right. of the nation. Now, the idea of of helping the poor, the oppressed, the fatherless, the the widows is it's all on the church, right? On I think nobody that was, else. That on, was
0: more Wilberforce's idea yeah. was that telling the church, like, hey. You should be doing this, you know. Yeah. Like this, he was advocating for that, but th- their government was very different than ours, or they yeah. weren't passing a bunch Absolutely. of top-down laws saying, "You know, here's money for the widows, here's money for this." But yeah. I think his advocacy was more, you know, "Hey, Christians, wake up! Like
3: this is your responsibility." Yeah. You know, type of. And thing. that's what, and that's how we saw the abolition of slavery in England is because he, right. without a he, war. he yeah. probably just said, "Hey, this is these people are value. They are, they they have value. They are." Image bearers of God; therefore, they should be cared for. Whether you're a Christian or not, you can believe that for sure. That they are, they have value. So, but only one system will provide that
2: reason for believing that, uh, right? With truth, so, um, I don't know if you guys want to leave it at final thoughts.
0: I, I, th- I think you know this is a, a deep a deep topic, you know, and we're definitely open to talking and learning more about this definitely you know we're for white guys not that i initially think that matters as far as the topic um but again you know people have different experiences and we're not discounting people's experiences and i think all of us would be open to talking to people about their experiences and but then viewing those experiences in light of the gospel right in light of the bible um under a bible under a biblical lens to see what that comes out as so you know i i think uh yeah, we'd definitely be open to talking more about this, but I think that the Bible is clear, that you know, we're all all sinners, we all need uh, we all need grace from God, we all need Christ, um, and that without that, you know, none of this other stuff matters, and so that is our first identity, right? Once Christ raises us from the dead and and creates a new heart in us, like, that's our first identity. We're believers. You know, uh, skin color takes a Ethnicity takes a back seat to that. It has to.
2: We're reconciled to Christ. Therefore, we should pray for others to be reconciled to Christ and for us to be reconciled to each other. That's what I'll be praying for, but always in according to the truth and always in according, therefore, to what God's word says.
3: Yeah, I think there's th- this conversation could, gone, could have gone hours longer for sure. sure. But I think yeah. Wilberforce said it best when. Um, there's people that aren't reconciled with Christ and people that are. are. So we, we just have to think of that when we when we interact with these people who are quote-unquote woke or um, part of the social justice movement. Um, are they reconciled to Christ or are they not? If they are, great. We could show them the, the faults of the social justice movement and the woke church and how it's unbiblical. And if they aren't um reconciled with christ that is our job to to share the gospel and and show them what real grace and mercy actually is amen well thanks for joining us wes thanks for joining us enjoyed it absolutely i
0: enjoyed it too we'll see Ah. you back yep i'll talk to you guys later thanks for listening